Good afternoon. Before I jump into um, this afternoon's topic, I thought maybe just a a quick word or two further about uh, about the omega might be might be useful. I, you know, one of the last things that that I want to do is is try and pretend that I know something when I don't. And I don't, I don't feel like I know details about the Omega. And um, I don't want to, to promote you know, uh, something that I don't, don't think I know. Um, I did, I did want to point out the one, what should I say, kind of a common theme that I think is, is helpful at least. And that is... In, in several of those quotes, Ellen White spoke of how uh, this work that was going on and that was influencing the mind of Dr. Kellogg and of others associated with him was similar to the work that Lucifer had done in the courts of heaven. Um, and that's interesting. You know, that's, that's an interesting thought. Uh, what, what was it he was doing in the courts of heaven? Uh, you know, and... and um, I don't know. I don't know all. Let's put it that way. But I do know that one of the one of the first arguments that Lucifer raised in heaven was that angels were holy in and of themselves, and consequently they did not need a law to govern them. Um, theosophy, New Age, whatever, this kind of thing promotes a concept of divinity within. And logically enough, once you've decided that divinity is within you rather than outside of you, um, those religions and that approach to spirituality becomes more a matter of developing that which is good within me than it is to looking to Christ or to anyone else for assistance. Um, I think that's a a key element. Um, sad to say, I think there are many things that contribute to that. And um, anything that serves to take our eyes and our attention from God's established word and will is directly or indirectly contributing to or preparing us for a more marked departure where we say, I am sufficient to determine what I want to believe or what I want to do or how I want to be saved. Now, I personally, I think there's going to be more to it than that, but I'm not a prophet and my dad wasn't a prophet, so I'm not the son of a prophet. Um, so I'm not going to pretend that I know in detail beyond that, but um, the core, I would guess, take it as a guess, the core similarity that Ellen White was talking about there is, is the, the sense of independence. I can decide this regardless what God thinks, regardless what Scripture says. I can decide. I, can, I am sufficient authority. And, you know, we are not. <laughs> we, we are not. And the sooner and the more completely we realize that we are utterly dependent 
the sooner and more completely we will be happy accepting it <laughs> and, and, and fulfill the, the role that God has given us. So that's, I don't know if that's helpful to anyone, but I just thought I would toss that out. Okay, well, uh, episode three. <clears throat> um, we can move on here. That's not really all that we're going to talk about. But we're going to start with malaria. And we're not talking some sort of a spiritual malaria. We're talking about malaria, malaria. Um, and an interesting little story. Now, this one comes from David Paulson. <clears throat> David Paulson was a physician who was uh, largely trained by, associated with, he was kind of like the second in command under Kellogg at the Battle Creek Sanitarium for quite a while. When Kellogg went off to Europe for seven months, I believe it was, once to get some further training and do some other investigating of things over there, David Paulson was the guy that he left in charge of the sanitarium. And um, some of you may remember the story uh, recounted by A.G. Daniels in um, his, his little account of how the denomination was saved from pantheism, right? It was David Paulson who was, um, and we'll come to that story later on today, but anyhow, David Paulson was the one who went walking at, at 1903 and, and the uh, meeting there at Carroll House in Washington, D.C., went walking back home after the meeting over, was over with A.G. Daniels and poked him in the chest and said, if you don't get out of the way and let the teachings and living temple carry through, you will be rolled in the dust and there will be another man leading this denomination. So Paulson was a, a fairly strong Kellogg supporter at that particular point. Now, one of the great things about history is that good people can make stupid mistakes and still be saved later on. That, that's incredible. That's, that's just so good. <laughs> you know, um, it's good to remember that. I need to remember that because history without charity is pretty depressing. <laughs> put that way and we need charity in our assessment of, of others today you know there are good men who make mistakes now we can't condone the mistake but we need to be willing as far as possible to believe you know if you have any reason to believe that a person's sincere and trying to do what's right you got to be able to cut them some slack and it helps me to recognize that that someone like David Paulson could be advocating the living temple, thinking he was doing the right thing, find out he was doing the wrong thing, and then get his life back on track. That's encouraging to me. Okay, well, anyhow, <clears throat> this particular story comes um, four years later. This is General Conference in 1907. Dr. Paulson had been, um, I think he'd gone for some further training or something. He was up at the University of Michigan, and he was taking a class along with a gentleman by the name of Daniel Cress, also a physician, um, and let's see. Oh, you know, we can pop this up. There we go. Uh, there we go. There's a picture of him. That's his wife, uh, Mary Paulson. She was also a physician. Um, but uh, David Paulson and uh, Daniel Cress were taking this class during the summer up in Michigan. And back in those days, they had what they called malarial summers. <laughs> okay. 
Um, and malaria was a, a common concern. It was, a, it was a problem up there. Well, at the time, the favored treatment for malaria was quinine. And uh, some of you would probably have a much better grasp of this but, than I do, but basically, you've got these uh, little plasmodium critters that get in your bloodstream and wreck all sorts of havoc. And the, the idea with the quinine is to get enough of it in there to kill them without killing you. And there's, you know, you got a little margin of error there and you try not to go too far. Um, and this was their, their, best, uh, their best treatment or their favorite treatment. Well, Paulson and Cress <coughs> had, um, had a question to deal with in their minds. And they said, you know, spirit of prophecy has not spoken favorably of quinine. There, is there a different way? And they opted, and you know, whether this was bravery or foolishness or audaciousness, or the Lord just chose to bless them, you know, I, you know the details you might have to work out for yourself, they opted to use a, a hydrotherapy method in treating malaria. Um, well, this elicited a good deal of scorn from some of their other classmates one of whom was, uh, Paulson describes him as being a great proponent of quinine. Uh, he was also very good at certain microscopic work, which was necessary for verifying the presence or the lack thereof of this plasmodium in your blood. And so they set up kind of a little um, controlled experiment. They agreed that, well, uncontrolled experiment, but anyhow, they agreed that uh, that the patients that came to their clinic that summer, they would alternate. Every other one would get quinine, every, and the other guys would get the hydrotherapy treatment. Well, okay. Um, this is how Paulson describes it. He says, we carefully took the temperature every 15 minutes. As soon as there began to be the least rise of temperature, that was a notification to us that the chill was approaching. We at once put the patient into a hot blanket pack, bringing on profound perspiration, and thereby, if we had hit it right, we invariably prevented the chill. The patient perspired for a time. We took him out carefully, and provided it was the alternate day variety of malaria, we gave tonic treatments, be hot and cold, alternating. The following day, we again instituted the temperature-taking program. We invariably found that the rise of temperature was much delayed, showing that we were gaining the ascendancy. We would then go through the same program. Frequently, we did not have to do this the third time. The work had been done, and in a week or ten days, the patient was fully restored to health. Sometimes we would miss hitting it just right for several days, so there would be a delay. This is a picture of Dr. Cress there, a much older uh, picture of him there, but you know. Paulson continues with this story. He says, One day, an old, feeble, broken-down man came in so loaded with malaria that it seemed he was on the brink of the grave. According to the rotation, he belonged on the quinine list. The other doctor, after sizing up the situation, said he did not dare to undertake the case, and he was turned over to our list. I will never forget when Dr. Cress and I earnestly told the Lord that his principles were on test and pleaded with him to vindicate what he had said. We then took hold of the case. Within a week, the man was restored to health. 
He presents here his uh, after-experiment summation. The quinine patients, some with deafness, irreparable, some with impaired mentality, others with numerous minor complications. Blanket-packed patients, not one with serious complications. Well, that's good. Now, unfortunately, there's a footnote that has to be added to this. And that is that um, the malaria that they were working with was the Western variety. It's caused by the protozoa Plasmodium vivax. The African variety is caused by Plasmodium falciparum. I don't hang up on the the pronunciation. I may have this all wet, but anyhow. The measures used by Paulson and Kress are effective for Western malaria, but don't work with the African variety. That's sad for a very simple reason. The problem hasn't gone away, Uh, especially not in Africa. Each year, between 350 million and 500 million people are infected with malaria, and one million die from the disease. Malaria accounts for one death every 30 seconds in Africa alone. Someplace a while back, I, I saw a comparison. This is, I don't have this in my notes here. I'm just trying to work off a of memory at the moment. But there was a, a comparison that was being done of research dollars per death and research dollars invested into AIDS, HIV per death were something like, I think it was $1,236 per death and research dollars invested into malaria was 24 or something per death Um, malaria doesn't get a lot of publicity it's out there but it's sort of on the other side of the world they don't have malaria much in Michigan anymore even of the what was it vivax or whatever kind okay Um, most African countries today are using chloroquine as their first line drug and that's been evidently uh, just a little reading up on this that's been popular since the 1970s unfortunately resistance to chloroquine is up to 90% in some areas so it doesn't always work so they came up with a, a new treatment and again pardon the pronunciation but I think it's supposed to be Sulfadoxin pyrimethamine. That's a newer option, but they have already found resistance running in uh, South Africa up to 60% of the cases. Well, they've, the investment of time and effort and money has kind of shifted from treatment to prevention, which is often a good thing. And right now, the, um, the aspect of malaria response that's getting the most press are um, insecticide-treated bed nets. And, you know, if you go looking in the right spots, you can find places where you can uh, sponsor an insecticide-treated bed net for $10. 
And in places where they distribute those, malaria incidence has dropped 80-some percent. You, know? you get enough bed nets out there and, and you would probably save hundreds of thousands of lives. So it's a good thing. Wouldn't it be nice to find a cure for malaria? You know, I've, I've always been attracted to heroic magnanimity. <laughs> I'd like to cultivate some someday, but I've always been attracted to those who have it. And that would be a great thing, to dedicate your life to solving the problem of malaria. Wouldn't it? I mean, you know, I could, I could feel good at night if I'd solved malaria. Saved a million lives this year and next year and next year and next year. Well, that's good. But what has that got to do with Adventism? Well, and specifically, Adventists, Adventism's future, what has that got to do with it? Well, it's, maybe it's a strain, maybe it's a stretch. We'll follow along here. As we approach the close of this Earth's history, selfishness and violence and crime prevail as in the days of Noah when the old world perished in the waters of the flood. As Bible believers, we need to take our position for righteousness and truth. Same statement, carrying on. As religious aggression subverts the liberties of our nation, those who would stand for freedom of conscience will be placed in unfavorable positions. For their own sake, they should, while they have opportunity, become intelligent in regard to disease, its causes, prevention, and cure. And those who do this will find a field of labor anywhere. There will be suffering ones, plenty of them, who will need help, not only among those of our own faith, but largely among those who know not the truth. Okay. What's he talking about? Um, well, let's see. Let me go on another screen before I make some general comments. This is a famous quote. I wish to tell you that soon there will be no work done in ministerial lines but medical missionary work. Wow. Really? No ministerial work but medical missionary work. None? Hmm. Okay. Um, <clears throat> hold that thought string up another idea for you medical who? who who am I talking to today that's that's the question this is you know well Melinda among other things is known as being something of a medical center down this direction um, so who am I talking to well let's Take a look and see what we can find out here. Let our ministers who have gained an experience in preaching the word learn how to give simple treatments and then labor intelligently as medical missionary evangelists. So, who are we talking to, huh? All gospel workers should know how to give the simple treatments that do so much to relieve pain and remove disease. Any of those around here? In every place the sick may be found, 
And those who go forth as workers for Christ should be true health reformers prepared to give those who are sick the simple treatments that will relieve them and then pray with them. Thus they will open the door for the entrance of the truth. As the canvasser goes from place to place, he will find many who are sick. He should have a practical knowledge of the causes of disease and should understand how to give simple treatments that he may relieve the suffering ones. How many have canvassed? How many have given medical attention to the people they're canvassing? <laughs> it's, it's not as common. God's people are to be genuine medical missionaries. They are to learn to minister to the needs of soul and body. They should know how to give the simple treatments that do so much to relieve pain and remove, remove disease. Do we have any of them here today? Now, let's switch from medical who to medical what. In each of those five statements that we just went through, I don't know if I was tricky enough, I was trying to focus your attention on the who. But did you see what the what was? Anybody notice? Use the same phrase in all five statements. The simple treatments. The simple treatments. Um, now, let me make a general disclaimer. <laughs> I am not opposed to modern medicine. <laughs> it's a great thing. It's not what I'm talking about at the moment. What I'm talking about is not a replacement for modern medicine. And I assure you that if I did something stupid one day and wrapped myself around a telephone pole at 70 miles an hour, I would rather have a fully equipped ER than a glass of echinacea tea. <laughs> echinacea may be good for some things. <laughs> Even that's debatable, depending on which study you read, I know. But anyhow, I have nothing but respect for the, the research and the learning that has gone into... Uh, acute care and those kind of things, especially emergency care. Uh, you know, if I, did, if I had nothing else to do in life, I've, I've often thought it'd, it'd be kind of fun to be like an EMT kind of a guy. I, I could enjoy that, you know. I have some former students who've done that, and I look at it and say, yeah, that'd be, that would be interesting. That would, I could feel good going to bed at night that I'd actually accomplish something for the day. You know, that's, that's an area that I might be interested in. Um, for the sake of being honest, so that you can form your own opinion as to you know, how much of what I say you want to listen to, uh, let me say that 
I'm not necessarily as big a fan of, of some of the traditional or the you know, current medical practices for lifestyle situations and uh, chronic conditions as I am for acute care. I give them real high marks on acute care. Sometimes I think I might prefer some different practices on, on some of the other issues. But um, even so, that's not what I'm talking about. God's remedies, and I don't think she's ruling out advanced medical care, so don't, you know, don't, don't go there with this. God's remedies are the simple agencies of nature that will not tax or debilitate the system through their powerful properties. Pure air and water, cleanliness, a proper diet, purity of life, and a firm trust in God are remedies for the want of which thousands are dying. Yet these remedies are going out of date because their skillful use requires work that the people do not appreciate. That's a key thought. You know, there are medical problems that I personally doubt there are any simple remedies to address. Maybe, you know, maybe I don't understand. Maybe, you know, if I could see with divine omniscience, I would know that there's more than I'm thinking. But personally... I don't think that your simple treatments are going to solve every medical problem out there. But they can be a great blessing. And one of the nice things about them is that they require time. Unfortunately, that's why they're not used. (laughs) If my only interest is in the restoration of physical health as quickly as possible, then I could see strongly being attracted to a lot of other remedies and other approaches. But you know, God is calling for something that can go along with and in the end be more important for eternity. And there's real value in being able to spend some time with that person. I personally think that's why these simple treatments, every one of them that I know of, takes time. Now, again, to put things into context, I've quoted these statements talking about simple treatments. Now, that's not a complete picture. Ellen White talks about other things. She says that every missionary, every minister that goes forth as a foreign missionary should know how to perform surgery. Did you know that? She's not against advanced medicine. Neither am I. But right now, I'm just talking about simple treatments. Put this into uh, another context here. If you just, you know, you go to your Ellen White CD-ROM product, you know, type in simple treatments... And you'll find that it shows up 41 times. That's not a bunch. If you type in simple remedies, you'll get 78 hits. Now, if you type in Jesus, you'll get (laughs) 37,000. Okay? If you type in God, you get 133,000. So this is not something that she's always talking about. This is not her her first line of, of emphasis. Okay? On the other hand, if you type in surgery, you only get 11. <laughs> so, whatever. Take it for what it's worth. 
Why, though? Why would God encourage simple remedies and simple treatments? And what has that got to do with the future? It's easy for me to look at Adventism and Adventist health work a hundred years ago and say, yeah, we had some real opportunities back then before the, the more sophisticated medical procedures uh, were invented, before the equipment was prevented. We might have been able to do great things with simple remedies back a hundred years ago. But I'm talking about the future. Why simple remedies? Well, I suspect that times will change from what we see today. In the last scenes of this earth's history, war will rage. There will be pestilence, plague, and famine. The waters of the deep will overflow their boundaries. Property and life will be destroyed by fire and flood. Now, here's a guess. This is just a, this is a thus saith Dave. This is not a thus saith the Lord. I am proposing that the Lord has encouraged simple treatments because the day will come when the existing medical services will be overwhelmed and all we will have at our disposal will be simple treatments and prayer. That's a pretty drastic thing. Could that really happen? Well... Have you um, ever heard of methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus? It's been in the press lately. I took a a one-year leave of absence from teaching uh, a while back. This was kind of interesting. Um, My daughter was almost five, and I was... I came to the conclusion that an academy was really not the best place to try and raise a little child. Um, And so we uh, bid adieu to our good friends at the academy, and I took a a year's kind of leave of absence, had a friend out in Oregon who said, hey, come work for me. So I said, okay, fine, I'll do something different for a while. And I went out and I worked for a year driving one of these little wheelchair vans, you know, moving people from point A to point B. It was kind of a mindless job, but there were a lot of interesting people to talk to. It was good for a year. I remember I went to the hospital one day, and I had my orders to pick up Mr. What's-His-Name, and I picked up the paperwork, and I went down the hall to whatever room it was, and there was this, this these tape surgical tape, something, whatever, strung across the doorway and this big quarantine sign hanging on it. And I double-checked the room number and it was the room I was supposed to pick the guy up from. And I wondered about that. <laughs> and so I went down to the nurse's desk and I said, hi, I'm uh, supposed to pick up whatever his name was. Oh, okay, he's down there in room whatever, and that was the same number. And I said, yeah, you know, the, the room seems to be kind of blocked off. <laughs> what's, what's, can you, what can you tell me about this? And they said, oh, oh, yeah, yeah. Well, he's got MRSA, I think is how they pronounced it. 
And I said, what is that? <laughs> I'd never heard of it before. And, um, you know, I'm not trying to claim any appalling levels of ignorance here, but there was nobody at the nurse's desk who knew what it stood for. That was, I did not find that at all comforting. <laughs> I mean, it's like, <laughs> so what am I supposed to do? Well, he's being discharged. Yeah, I know that, but I want to live. <laughs> so they, they told me, well, it's, it's not that serious. And I said, yeah, good. Why is the room taped off? <laughs> well, anyhow, eventually, um, and I have no idea if this is the proper medical procedure, but eventually they, they put a gown on me, uh, gave me some gloves, a whole bunch of um, chucks, right? And they said, put these all on the floor of your van before you bring the wheelchair in and then take them off and burn them when you're done. <laughs> and I'm saying, you know, <laughs> I've got a little issue with this. <laughs> Well, eventually that's what happened. And I guess the poor old gentleman went home and he died. I, I don't really know. Um, I looked it up that night on the Internet. <laughs> and I found out what MRSA stands for. And I read up on it a little bit, you know. And it, it's not good stuff. Ever hear this one? Um, now, I'm not claiming that I know of a simple remedy for these guys. But wouldn't it be cool if you could find one? <laughs> um, these have both been in the, uh, in the news quite a bit lately. Uh, this is my personal favorite. I've been following this for a couple of years. I have a sort of a, a background interest in this topic. My grandfather <clears throat> was a student at Western Washington Missionary Academy in 1918 when the Spanish, falsely so-called, influenza hit. And um, all travel to and from the academy was terminated. They were under lockdown. In the boys' dormitory, they lost 12 students over about a two-week period, as I recall it. My grandfather never got sick. I hope I got his genes. <laughs> uh, he and a friend were working night and day because they had a lot, of, a lot of kids who were sick. And it was pretty vicious. I suspect some of you have read about it. Uh, and they were, uh, they were working pretty much night and day. And about the time everybody was getting over it, my grandfather's friend came down with it. And three days later he was dead. And that's when he determined he was going to be a physician. Well, other events transpired and it, that particular option was closed to him. And so he did not make that. But I remember him talking about it and thinking, boy, I hope that never happens again. How many of you recognize the name David Burkitt? Anybody from CHIP here? Are there any CHIP people out this direction? No? 
Yes? Okay, good. <laughs> okay, David Burkitt, Burkitt? I don't know how to pronounce it. That's my problem. You know, I live in Wichita, right? And I just, I just read this stuff. I don't have a chance to talk to anybody who knows how to actually pronounce these things. But anyhow, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh, David Burkitt was a, a, a British physician. He's the guy that put fiber on the map, right? You ever remember his story? Uh, he's also the guy, I think, won a, what was it, a Nobel Prize or something, a prize in medicine. He's the first guy that demonstrated a relationship between a virus and a particular form of cancer. Uh, it's called Burkitt's sarcoma, I believe. Um, I just read a biography on David Burkitt. And I found the whole story very, uh, very interesting, very inspiring. But you know, the thing that caught my attention the most is right at, near the beginning of the book where it was talking about his uncle, Roland Burkitt, who had preceded him one generation before as a medical missionary on the expense of the British government to Kenya. And Roland Burkitt was in Kenya at the time of the Spanish influenza. And I'm not making any guarantees and I'm totally unqualified to talk about medicine. So, you know, take that into context. But it's interesting. When Dennis, did I say David? Dennis Burkitt. You know, when Dennis got down to Kenya, one of the first things he did was track down an old doctor who had worked with his uncle years before to find out if all the wild stories he'd heard about his uncle were true. And this doctor assured him that they were. And one of the things that he told him I found very interesting. He said that the elder Briquette had read some particular handbook on the treatment of fevers. I forget the titles in the book, but I don't remember it. And he had adopted the author's perspective on fever. And it's pretty simple. It's the kind of thing that I'd come up with, which probably makes it dangerous. It said, if the patient is too hot, you cool him off. <laughs> Whatever it takes, you cool him off. And so Burkitt would do pretty heroic measures. It described one, this, this doctor who was laughing the whole time as he was telling Dennis about his uncle. He described this uh, one time that uh, a British woman had come to him with a child, fairly young evidently, who had a fairly serious fever. And she had him all bundled up so he wouldn't catch pneumonia. And Burkitt, according to the book, took the kid, hung him up in a basket that was out on the porch, and sprayed him with a hose of cold water. The mother kind of freaked at this, went screaming off to someplace else, threatening to sue, and Brooket just stood there and smiled and kept spraying. Okay. Uh, pretty soon the fever broke, and uh, the kid was fine. Now, I'm not offering any prescriptions here, but it was interesting. This doctor said that when Brooket was there, through that whole Spanish influenza, he treated hundreds of people, both foreigners and Africans, and he never lost a single person to the Spanish flu. Now, if you've read any of the projections as to what might happen if we actually get a serious pandemic, I'm looking at this and I'm saying, you know, this would be a great time for God's work if God's people all knew 
at least one simple remedy. <laughs> Do you follow what I'm saying? You know, I'm not saying we should all go out and pretend that we can cure the world. I'm not saying that. Please, I don't want a lawsuit. You know? I'm not saying there's a simple remedy for everything. But I am saying that there is a significant amount of spirit of prophecy encouragement for this and specifically in the context of times when there will be sufferers enough, plenty of them. I think that time may be coming. One other one, just to round out the picture. Anybody hear of this one yet? Adenovirus, serotype 14. Hey, I've only read two articles on it, so I'm no authority. But it's, it's one that's caught their attention. It's, it's, a, it's a, some sort of a bug that normally causes something like a cold. But in the last 18 months, they've had 10 fatalities from otherwise young and healthy people. Another thing that makes it interesting is that all your cold bugs, they've already got the easy communication, you know, communicable disease business. They've, they've already got that down pat. That's what's saving our, our backside, so to speak, with the, uh, with the flu so far, is it doesn't go from person to person that readily. But this stuff, you know, there's, there's a little worried about that. Um, there's probably some others that could go on that list, but I'm not an alarmist, <laughs> so I'll stop there. That's enough. Um, simple moral to my story here. For their own sake, they should, while they have opportunity, become intelligent in regard to disease, its causes, prevention, and cure. I'm not offering any courses. I'm not selling any get well at home books. I don't even know what that means. I am convinced it means something that could be very valuable to us in the near future. If God's people, for their own sake and possibly for the sake of the one who suggested it to them, would do whatever is called for by that statement. 